Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and it's always great to talk to someone who makes you see the world in a whole new way. And that's what you're about to hear when you listen to my conversation with Brian David Johnson, a futurist. In fact, Brian is a futurist in residence at Arizona State University. But not only did Brian welcome me to the future, he made me see my past differently. See, I've been a writer for decades now. First started out with a typewriter. Now I work on a laptop. I had no idea that the keyboard was slowing me down. Brian explains how a keyboard slows all of us down and why in the near future, we won't be using them anymore. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast knows that I'm an old school guy, but I can't remember a conversation I've had that's made me embrace the technology that we now have and all that is to come, like the conversation you're about to hear. So, as Brian says, welcome to the future. One thing I can guarantee you about the future is we'll all want to be comfortable in what we're wearing. And that's why I'm wearing my Sportique hoodie and sweatpants as I do this intro. My Sportiques make me feel great. The more I get to know this company, the closer I am to it. I've spoken recently with National Hockey League star Paul Stastny and found out how he made sure he was in his Sportiques when his wife gave birth to his first child. I've had breakfast with Bruce Keenan, who went on a trek to Nepal and came away starting Himalayan Children's Charities, which started educating hundreds of kids there left without parents. Bruce brings these kids sportique t-shirts and gets to see the delighted look on their faces when they feel its softness. I've talked to a cancer survivor who pretty much lived in his sportique sweatpants while going through chemotherapy. When you're in an uncomfortable situation, it's great to feel comfortable. And if you're in a comfortable situation, you're going to feel even more comfortable in your sportiques. I'm telling you, you're going to be happy if you go to sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com. And even happier if you use the offer code CAL, C-A-L, because you'll get 20% off. The reason I'm smiling now is because I know when you try on Sportique, you're going to be smiling too. Also want to tell you about my intent bracelets, because they're a great way to create your future. My intent bracelet is the bracelet that makes you think. That's because you have the word that you want to guide you chiseled into a token and wrapped around your wrist with a beautiful band. Every time you look at your wrist, you're motivated by that word. It becomes like a mantra. It can guide you like a North Star. So go to myintent.org and use the offer code CAL, C-A-L, to see where a My Intent bracelet can take you. You'll get 30% off, and these bracelets are very affordably priced even before the discount. So it's a fantastic deal. Everyone should know by now that I only talk about products that I use and love. So if you need office space, check out WeWork. 
I've got a global access pass at WeWork. And let me tell you, it feels like I've got the keys to the kingdom. When I need a quiet place to do a podcast, all I need to do is go to the WeWork app and find just the room I need wherever I am. A couple of years ago, I didn't even know how to call up an app on my smartphone. Look at me now, Brian. You may be the futurist in residence at Arizona State, but my global access pass makes me feel like I'm in residence at WeWork. They say it's the place where company meets community, but to me, it feels like home. I'm even going to do some storytelling workshops there to help companies learn how to best tell their stories. So you begin to see all the options WeWork can give you. You need a space at a table to put down a laptop? They got it. You need your own office space? Small office space? They got it. You need a larger space where many people can work together? Got that too. Conference rooms, podcast rooms, theater space to hold events. WeWork can make everyone's life better. And it just may make yours better if you check out WeWork.com. Plus, you'll get a 20% discount if you use the offer code www.we.co slash cal. That's www.we.co slash cal. So let WeWork take you into your future, just like Brian David Johnson, who's coming your way. The last time we talked, you told me how tyrannical the keyboard is. It just blew my mind uh, that this keyboard, which basically has guided my life, is basically slowing me down and will soon become useless. And I just love to talk about that. Yeah, let's dive right in. All right. Why do I cling to this keyboard with all of my might? Because it's basically where I've done everything in my life. When you're expressing to me that I should just be willing to look ahead and let it go, what kind of world am I going to be stepping in once I let that go? So when the QWERTY keyboard or the great, we call it QWERTY, which is Q-W-E-R-T-Y, which is because at the top left of everybody's keyboard, it says QWERTY. So that's what we call it, the QWERTY keyboard. So that keyboard is on its way to extinction. That will die. And when it does die, we will be in a lovely time where the way in which we act and interact with machines and computers will be much, much more human because for as long as this keyboard has been around, it is turning us into machines. It has turned us into a machine so that we can talk to the machines. So you're saying that going forward, I'm going to be more human without this keyboard. How? Well, it allow you to interact with your devices, with artificial intelligence, simply by talking to it. Or simply by, imagine you could communicate with your house simply by living in it. 
that we're getting so much computational intelligence and we're getting so much intelligence in our devices that we can now interact with them in a way that's much more natural to who we are as humans. I explain how that's going to work because I can't, I, I walk into my house and how am I communicating with it? So just think about how you communicate with people in your life. So there's your demeanor. Uh, people know you, so they know if you're an introvert or an extrovert. They know how you like to be spoken to. You have a, a culture in your home. Maybe you're a, a household of yellers who yell at each other, and that's how you show love. Or maybe you're a very quiet household that keeps things very low. So your machines will know that. They'll also know if you're in a good mood or a bad mood. They'll be able to know that because of your facial recognition. To, be, to look at how you're holding your body, to hold your gait. So you'll have enough sensors in your home so that it'll just, it'll know you because it has spent time with you and remembered you, but also it will learn and be able to pick up on those little nuances. Just like when you walk in the door and somebody in your family or somebody you know really well can instantly know if you're in a good mood or a bad mood. Imagine if your machines, your home, or even your smartphone could do, could do that. Okay. So my smartphone is going to know simply by my facial expressions, simply by the way I'm walking, all the body language that actually I look for in an interview, it's going to be able to pick up through just recognizing my patterns? Understanding your patterns and then it'll be trained. I mean, so really what artificial intelligence does is it has the ability to look at a, a massive data set, which is all that information coming from those sensors, and make sense with it. And it does it using probability. So there'll be a probability that you're in a good mood or a bad mood, and then it'll be able to make decisions on how it communicates with you. Okay. Let, let's go back to basics here because I'm going to be honest, I have no idea what artificial intelligence is. Can you explain it to me? Oh, certainly. At, at, people define artificial intelligence in many, many different ways. But I think the best way to describe it is the ability for a computer to take in a large amount of data, to look through that data, to come up with um, conclusions, to be able to learn from it and learn from it over time and then take actions. So it can look at a large amount of information, find patterns in it, begin to learn things from it, and then it can train itself. So then it can begin to learn, much like looking at large amounts of data about you or your face or how you're living, and to be able to take that in and then be able to make uh, decisions maybe on, on how it communicates with you or what it says to you, things like that. So it has the ability to process large amounts of information, but also learn from what it's processing. Now, like how are these sensors going to be set up? How will it be that my cell phone can look at me. I know that it, it can store all of my words. Uh, I, and I've heard that people can actually, may actually be able to be heard over their phones by people they don't want to hear them. Uh, if your phones can be tricked. I'm, I don't know anything about it, but I've been warned about it. Uh, how would a phone be able to measure what's on my face and my mood and, and know how to respond to that. So it's all about sensors. So a sensor could be a camera. It could be a microphone. It could be an accelerometer to sort of show if something's in motion. So all of these are just different sensors. And sensors take 
information from the physical world and turn it into digital signals, turn it into information. And then those signals go into the computational device and that becomes that large amount of data that then it's been trained to know and use and then be able to, again, make decisions and, and react to you. So the example of your smartphone or, or any device, it has a camera on it so it can see your face. It has a um, microphone so it can hear your voice. Um, it knows if it's being moved around. It has GPS. It knows where it is. So it has all these different sensors, and it's the ability to take in all of those sensors to process it, to be able to, and it will have been trained to know what a happy face is and what a sad face is. It would have been trained to understand that. So it'll be able to take that sensor information, compare it against what it's been taught, and be able to make a estimate around your mood. And then it can use that information to then figure out how it might respond to you and how it might have a conversation with you. Okay, so I walk in the house after a, a difficult day and my phone can read my expression. I'm not a happy man. Does it then start doing things to make me happy? Well, it depends upon what you've programmed it to do. So you could do that. I always joke it would be really great if you could have like a smart office building make jokes to you in the elevator on a Monday to, to kind of perk you up. Um, so I think that's up to us. And that's one of the things that as we move into the future, one of the things that we're going to be thinking about is, well, what do we want all these devices to do? Do we want our house to crack jokes if we're in a, a bad mood? Or do we want it to just leave us alone? It's really, it's really what we want it to do and how it would make our lives better. How far away is this world that you're talking about? At scale, it's probably about five to 10 years out. The capability exists right now. Five years away, my phone's going to be reading my face. It's already reading your face. <laughs> oh, no, Brian. The new version of most smartphones have uh, cameras and also have facial recognition software. And you can actually use your face to unlock the phone. Okay, I get that. I get that. I'm only doing that when I'm looking at the phone, but what happens when the phone is in my pocket or uh, I'm carrying it in my hand? How, how would it be seeing me then? Well, you would have to position the sensor in front of your face. You would have to have it in front of your face. So you would, you would pick up your phone and you could talk to your phone. Or as I mentioned before, it's not really about one device because we all don't just have a single device, right? Many of us have a smartphone, we have a laptop. We also have lots and lots of electronics in our house. And part of the idea of you being able to walk into your house is all of those devices will have sensors on them and all of them will be talking to each other and sharing information. Okay, so there's going to be a sensor on my front door at some point that as soon as I walk in, it's going to know, oh man, Cal had a rough day and might be talking with other sensors to let my environment know how to cheer me up, give him a joke or get him some coffee or exactly you could have your connected doorbell which many people have connected doorbells that have cameras on them right now so as you walk up to that it sees that you're in a bad mood and when you walk in the coffee's going there's some west coast jazz playing on the hi-fi and <laughs> it's all better so they're gonna know i love hearing louis armstrong sing it's a wonderful world and that's gonna lift my spirits i i walk in and that music starts playing it can tell from all of your previous work. So it can look at your 
Spotify account or your Pandora account or your Apple Music account, or just the the stereo itself will know what you play and what you're most what you most like. So now I'm beginning to see why I wouldn't need a keyboard because I wouldn't have to type in play It's a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. It would naturally play. Correct. I mean, where we are today is we have these smart devices like Alexa and Siri and Cortana that you can just say to them, hey, Alexa, play Louis Armstrong, and it'll play. You can just ask for it. That's where we are today, and that's only going to increase. But yes, what I'm saying is we look five to 10 years out into the future, we will have a much deeper relationship with our devices, and it'll just know to play it. How far will this go? Will it go to a point where I walk into my house and a sensor can read, you know, Cal would like a salad tonight. He's feeling a little... uh, a little overweight today, uh, and all of a sudden, a computer's going to start chopping up the greens? <laughs> More likely, it would place an order and actually have them delivered to you by somebody else. But yeah, I mean, that's, what, that's the future we're going to be um, living in, is, and that's the real question we need to ask ourselves, and what I'm really excited about, and sort of the next generation of engineers that I work with that they're thinking about is, what do we want? Again, it's up to us. It's not up to the machines. It's up to us to say, well, what would be a really good feature? What kind of things would we like our house to do? And what kind of things would we like to have done for us? When ultimately, it's about us. Ultimately, it's not about the machines. It's about people and how we use all this technology to make people's lives better. How do we make people safer and healthier and more productive? How we make them laugh? That's really the goal. So we can program all these sensors to make us happy. Ultimately, I think it can make us comfortable. I don't know if it can make us happy. I mean, money can't buy happiness, so I don't know if sensors can buy happiness, but we certainly can make us more comfortable, and that's pretty good. So one of the things you told me in, your, in our last conversation uh, that really struck me was that the things you're talking about have already been invented. They're already in play. We may not have seen them, but they're active and they're working. So what is going on in the minds of people as we're carrying this forward for 10, 15, 20 years from now? Well, for me, most of the modeling that I do as a futurist is only 10 years out. So that's kind of the, that's a, a, a pretty hard stop for me is when I, when I look out, it's really just 10 to 15 years. And the reason why I do that, as you said, is because... Anything that's going to meaningfully affect our lives 10 to 15 years from now already exists. It's already uh, in a university. It's in a corporate lab. Somebody's already building it. Um, So if most of those folks are what they're thinking is they're trying to figure out how they use this to go to market, how they use it to make money, how they build a business out of it. As I said, I normally push people to say, how are you going to use this to make people's lives better? But most of those people are trying to figure out how to take those technologies and turn them into something that can have an impact on the world. You know what? I'm going to just step back for a second because I want to find out a little about what attracts your mind to all this. And and then we're going to push it forward and move it to what I'm going to see in the next 10 years. Was there a a moment in your childhood when you were seven years old that you knew you were attracted to the future? I think the moment 
in my childhood, when I realized that I was attracted to the future was probably the, the, my birth. <laughs> I tell people that I was, both my mother and my father were both engineers. So I was raised by geeks and pretty much born to be a futurist. My head has always done this work. So I'm an engineer and a designer by training, which really kind of made me fit for um, futurism, that being able to um, look kind of interdisciplinary across everything from not only engineering and design, but economics and uh, interviews and talking to people and sort of having that sort of curious mind that's always trying to pull all these things together and see those patterns. And so very, very early on, that's also why I'm a science fiction author is I've always kind of thought about that. And for me, it's always been natural being able to kind of think about the future, possibly through science fiction, but then be able to use what I've learned as an engineer and a designer and ultimately as a futurist to figure out how to make that future happen. Okay, I, I just want to get something straight here because I, I want to make sure I'm understanding this right. Only one other person has ever told me that they can like remember their birth. I was making a joke, Cal. No, I, I can't remember my birth. I, I thought you and Scooter Braun, uh, the uh, manager of Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber, were going to be the two people who could remember their birth. That's amazing. Uh, knowing I, I know Scooter, so that's, uh, that's amazing. I did not know that about him. Yeah, next time you see him, uh, let him know. I think you're both closely tied here. It sounds like what you're telling me is that for ever since you could remember, you've been attracted to the future. Correct. It has always been my normal state. I've never known anything different. Like how, how do I see that, say, when you're in second grade? Um, well, I can, I can tell you the best thing is when, maybe not second grade, but when I, when I was 10, um, I was deeply entrenched in computers. It's actually, that's when I started going to college and taking college classes. And Everything that I would do, I would sort of go to classes and then I would, I actually worked in the computer lab at the time. And so I was, here's this 10 year old reading science fiction books, uh, teaching people how to use personal computers. This would have been back in 1982. And then in my spare time, what I would do is I would just wander through the stacks in the library of the college, pulling down books on all these different subjects because I was trying to think about these different futures. And I was doing what I didn't realize back then is I was doing research. I was, even before I was taught to do research, I was doing research. So yeah, I was the, the weird little geeky kid who worked in the, the computer lab when he was 10 and I thought it was completely normal. Well, did we have personal computers back then? Or in 1982, yeah, that's when it. That's when the the very beginning of it started to happen. Mostly, we were on those large mainframes where the computer was the size of a room. But back in around 82, really a little bit earlier, is when we first started getting them. We didn't have them in mass until a little bit later. Everybody didn't have them. But being at the university, being at the college, they were able to certainly purchase the ones that were really expensive. So when you would go home for dinner and talk with your mom and dad. What was the dinner table conversations like? Oh, usually we talk about, we talk about coding. 
So I, I was learning Fortran at the time. So we would talk about that. I mean, you got to understand, like being being raised by an electrical engineer, like my dad was a radar tracking technician. And so he would come home and bring schematics from the radar and basically tell me the story of how different components of the radar worked. And he would kind of trace it out with his finger and pretty much tell it to me. And then a couple of weeks later, he would come back and actually have that decommissioned part from the radar and tell me to take it apart. And for me, that was a regular Thursday night. And so it was a, it was a very different type of upbringing. Oh, man. I, like, I can't, it's hard for me to comprehend that, but I, I get where you're coming from. So that's Thursday night. What happened Saturday night? Well, Saturday night, I would probably be down in the basement on my TI-99, my Texas Instruments 99, which was one of the more affordable small computers, and I would be writing code. Um, I would be in the basement and I would be writing games because I was a kid. So I'd be writing computer programs to make games. But back then, the disk drive, there weren't disk drives. Basically, how you would save that code is you would record it onto tape, onto a cassette tape. That was the hard drive, if you will. That was the drive. And then what I would do at night is I would pop that tape out and I would take it up into my bedroom. And as I fell asleep, I would actually listen to the squawks, the beeps and squawks of the code um, on that audio tape and think about the the code. Um, I'm about to ask you probably the most frightening question I have ever asked in my entire life. Should I be learning to code? Everybody should learn to code. And the reason why is not because I think you're going to be a coder, not that I think you're going to be a computer programmer, but you begin to understand that there's nothing mystical about computer programming or code. It's just a language. It's a language that we use to talk to the computers and that computers use to talk to us. So having an understanding of that language and how that works that's pretty important because we're only going to have more computers around us. So understanding how that works can help. Well, you know what it reminds me of uh, is sort of if you're owning a business and your business requires that you hire people to dig ditches, it's important that you go and dig a ditch just so you know what it entails. And that way, when you hire somebody or when the work needs to be done, you know, you know what's going on. That's a great example. Or if you have a business that is going to do business in Japan, you should probably learn Japanese. And not only because you should be able to communicate with people, but you can also then, as you say, understand the subtleties of the culture and what's going on. You'll just have a better awareness when you act and interact with people from Japan. It's the same thing with understanding code and how you act and interact with a computer. Wow. Will I be less frightened of technology if I do this? Definitely. You'll understand that computers really aren't that smart at all. Whoa. How long will it take me uh, to just learn some basics about coding just to eliminate my fear? Oh, there's a tremendous amount of resources. There's some very good books on it. There's, uh, you know, certainly online videos, YouTube videos that can kind of walk you through kind of the, the high level overview. So it's really a matter of beginning to read a book or watching a few videos just to begin to be educated around the, the fundamentals of computer programming. Like what would I code? 
So oftentimes it depends upon what you want to do. Um, again, a computer is just a tool. So you could say, well, what do you want that tool to do? Do you want it to add up a series of numbers? Do you want to be able to do face recognition? There's uh, any number of things that you would want to accomplish. You would just have to pick, pick a task because that's really all computers are is they're just tools. And we just have to figure out what you want to get done. Yeah, see, this, this is the thing. I, I don't look at it as a tool. It, it almost, God, I don't want to say it's, it's certainly not an enemy because it allows me to produce the things that enable me to communicate and, and make a living. But it almost seems like it has a control over me when I can't get it to do what I'd like it to do. Is this, is this just me or is this something that many people feel? I think it's a, it's, a, it's a common feeling, but it's also a common misconception. We imbue computers with far more intelligence than they actually have. Uh, I think a, a good corollary to that is when you go out to jump in your car to go do errands and your car doesn't start, you don't think the car is your nemesis and it's trying to keep you from getting things done. You think there's just something wrong with it, that it's broken and it needs to be fixed. It's the same thing with machines, that with computers, if it's not letting you get something done, it's not because it's not letting you, it's just because there's something wrong with it and it needs to be fixed. Uh, I, see, I would take it personal. I thought that the computers had it in for me. That all this technology, and, and you know what, I, I'll tell you what would happen. And this, this goes back to when the emails just got started and I couldn't figure out how to do an email. And so I call in to the technicians and we're going on for three hours. And finally it dawned on me that he kept on saying, just type, Dot com, and I was typing D-O-T-C-O-M. And that's why none of the technology was working. So I guess that tells you a little about me, uh, but it's, it almost sounds like you're saying, Cal, you have not been friendly to the computer. Or you've been giving it too much credit for what it is. I mean, again, the machines, they're just tools. It's like a hammer, right? A hammer is just a hammer. And a hammer is really only interesting when you use it to do something. It's the same thing, um, really, that computers are not very smart and they are programmed by humans. Um, and so really, it's just about getting things done. Um, so no, I think you sh everybody should be a little nicer to computers, certainly. Um, and definitely, if, if they have an Alexa or a Siri or a Katana, they should definitely remember to say please and thank you when they ask them to do something. Oh, you know what? That brings up a good question. How could I be nice to my computer so that it'll like me better? Oh, you should take care of it like a pet. You should care for it. You should feed it. You should make sure that it's clean. You should make sure that it's secure. You should make sure that it's healthy. All those things you can do for a computer. You do some virus checks to make sure that it's healthy. You uh, reboot it. Make sure you patch it when somebody sends you security patches to make sure that it's secure. Um, it's really the care and feeding of your computer is really what makes it run really well. What most people do, they're very bad at care and feeding. If, the, if their computer were a goldfish, that goldfish would have died a long time ago. Oh, man. You know, it, it, what you're saying makes such common sense. Why don't most people get this? 
I don't think people give themselves enough credit. <laughs> I think that people do forget that it is about people, that it is about them. Uh, when I talk to people about this, they imbue our technology with far more intelligence and intent than it actually has. And I think when you do just see the, all these machines as tools that are there to serve you, that your viewpoint becomes very, very different. Oh, Brian, this could have been a breakthrough moment here because I hear about sensors that are going to be on my door or that are going to be in places that I have no control of. And I immediately feel like some sense of fear of being spied upon or having my life recorded in a way that I might consent to. Uh, but basically, it sounds like you're telling me that just simply understanding what these tools do and what's around me is going to give me a greater feeling of comfort. Well, I think you can build upon that by saying, what are they there for? What are they doing? And what are they accomplishing? So it's a, it's very healthy when you hear that to actually say, well, all right, well, who's recording or who's gathering this information? What are they doing with that data? That's that, that, that skepticism and that questioning is, is healthy. I always push people to do that, but you should make sure that you're empowered so that you're going and asking people, you're asking that question, well, what are you using it for? What are you, what are you doing? That there's nothing, again, inherently wrong about being able to pull in that information, but what people are doing with it, um, you should feel empowered to know what they're doing and why they're doing it. Okay. So as you're moving along in your life, you get to say junior high school, maybe you're starting high school, where is your mind at then? Because you're in the lab at 10, where are you at, say, 16 or 17? Puberty. <laughs> what does the mind of a futurist think while you're going through puberty? <laughs> I don't know if you remember uh, puberty that well, Cal. It was a very confusing time. Um, no, I was, I was still the same. I was still programming. I was uh, very much into games, as, as most kids are, um, so into video games, um, very much into, into science fiction at that time, so uh, heavily read and watched um, science fiction, um, and was still using computers very, very heavily. Um, by that point, I'd gotten into a bit more of design because computers had kind of moved a little bit forward, and now there were computers in that, in that junior high and in that high school. And so I was the editor of the science magazine. Um, I was, I was that, uh, crazy kid that loved science so much that I got an extra class added to my day and I came to school an hour and a half early so I could study it. Wow. I, I couldn't think of a person like going through high school, uh, more different than I was more different than my experience. And I'm, I'm realizing that this new world is made for your personality and I better start doing things that are more aligned with it. I mean, even playing video games, should, should I be playing video games? I'm terrible at video games. And it's because of the same reasons we're talking about. I don't have an affinity for it. I don't know what I'm doing. And then I'm getting beaten by four-year-olds and so it makes me just 
step back and not want to deal with it. But this conversation is telling me, Cal, you got to put your hands on the tools. Yes, I think it's it's always good to be familiar with the technology. I mean, ultimately, what I would say is if you should play games if you want to play games and if you enjoy playing games. But I would say another probably more um, inspiring reason to play games is because you'd be playing games with those four-year-olds, with those other people. That's the thing for me. Not, I'm not only a futurist, but I'm also a professor and a teacher. And so I get to spend quite a lot of time around young minds. And I spend a lot of time in K through 12 schools talking to these young minds and telling them that they're going to build the future and getting them really thinking about the future. And if no other reason to play games is to be able to hang out and talk to them, because when you get to hear them talking about the future, that's awesome. What can I learn from a four-year-old? I'll give you a, a, a better story around um, what you can learn, what I learned from an eight-year-old. So I build robots. I'm a roboticist. And so I have this project called 21st Century Robot. It gives people the tools so they can imagine, design, and build their own robots. Written a book about it. Been working on it for a while. And so I work with people to build robots. And so I go with these kids and I ask them, you know, tell me your name of your robot because every robot's an individual. So they tell me their name. And then I say, all right, draw me a picture of the robot. And kids love to draw pictures. So they draw me pictures. And I say, what would your robot do that nobody else was to do? And they write that down. And they say, write me a story about what your robot would do while you're at school. And they get really excited about that. And then what they don't realize when they take a step back is they've just done an engineering specification. They've named the project they've done a design, they've come up with a requirements document, and then I work with them to go and build robots. And so there was one young gentleman by the name of Cole, and Cole was building a robot. And so I, he was building a, a spider-looking robot that was a steampunk robot. It had a top hat on and a monocle. And I was talking to him. I said, Cole, this is amazing. What would your robot do that nobody else's would do? And he goes, oh, my robot's going to tell jokes. I was like, oh, that's great. Now, is your robot going to tell good jokes? We're going to tell bad jokes because I love bad jokes. And Cole kind of looked at me and rolled his eyes and he's like, BDJ, he's going to have a switch on the back of his head. And it's going to, on one side, it's going to say good jokes. On the other side, it's going to say bad jokes. And I just stopped. And at that moment, I realized I will never build a robot with an adult ever again. I will only build robots with kids. Oh, man. Now I'm wondering... Should I be hanging around with these kids who are building robots just to to remove all these fears that I have? Because it sounds like it's so natural to them. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Seeing those young minds in action and seeing them do what they do, it's really inspiring. All right. So now I got to learn to code. I got to hang out with eight-year-olds making robots. What? I got to treat my computer like a pet. I... What else should I be doing to prepare myself for the future? Oh, I can tell you the one thing. Really, those other things are really important. But if there's one thing overall to prepare for the future, prepare to be um, employed in the future, and then to be successful in the future, there's really just one thing you really need to do. Okay. It's very simple. Be human. (laughs) It's the one thing I can do. That's the most important thing, Cal, because being human is the one thing that machines can't do. And human beings are very good at being human. We're quirky, we're odd, we're diverse, we're really good communicators. We can really pick up on people really quickly. We can even communicate with people who we don't even speak the same language. 
we are empathetic and sympathetic, we have emotional intelligence, and it turns out human beings like other human beings. It is the foundation of our humanity. It's what makes us human. If you take a prisoner and put them in solitary confinement for too long, they actually start to lose their humanity. So the thing I also tell folks is that that's the most important part, like be the best human, because if you can do that, then you're going to be just fine. Well, that's a good start. So I'm going to be the best human I can possibly be. But part of that is going to be preparing for these next 10 years where, where you're telling me that the changes that are about to occur are things that we might not have like thought about back in 1970 when we were going to hit 1980. I mean, we thought the world was basically going to stay the same place, but it, it almost feels like there are going to be huge differences between now and 10 years from now. Well, yes and no. I think one of the things, <clears throat> as a futurist, what I've learned is that the, one of the dirty little secrets about the future is it's going to look a lot like the present. 10 years from now, when you walk out your front door, the world's going to look pretty much the same. And that's a good thing. Because by the way, if you walked out your door and all of a sudden you were living in a Star Wars, Blade Runner, or Jetsons future, we call that a nightmare. That's really scary, right? So it turns out human beings don't like change all that much. We actually value things that are older, right? We pay more money for older houses, right? People like vintage cars. And so there's nothing wrong with the fact that it's not going to change that much. But there are things that, as we've been talking about, that are going to change. And those things oftentimes are unseen. They're sort of behind the scenes or sort of underneath everything we do. And you've seen that happen with electricity and telephones and television. You've also seen it happen now with the internet and mobile phones. So there's little changes that start to happen. And over the next 10 years, because of artificial intelligence, because of smart cities, because of the internet of things, all these smart devices and sensors talking to each other, because of robots, because of autonomous vehicles, we, our world will have some pretty big shifts going on. It pretty much will look the same, but just as the internet has changed how we shop and how we communicate, they're also going to change how we live and work and play. You know, everybody talks about these cars that are going to drive themselves. Well, in 10 years, will everybody be getting into a car that drives itself? No, we have the ability to do it now. We have the technological ability to have self-driving cars. And in Arizona, Tempe, Arizona, where I'm a professor at Arizona State University, we have self-driving cars driving around. I, I see more and more and more of them when I go down to the university. So technologically, we're there. But from a culture, from a society, from a legal framework, from a regulatory framework, we're not there yet. We're just beginning to understand it. And some cities are kind of leading that charge and kind of looking for that, and other cities aren't. But we also have to understand that the reality of some places are you're just not going to have them. Like you take Saskatchewan, Canada, right up in the plains of Canada, where it's very icy all the time. Having a self-driving car up there is going to be tough. Um, granted, it will happen at some point, but it's going to be a lot tougher than having it go around the streets of Tempe, Arizona. What's it like to be driving down the street and seeing a car with nobody in the passenger seat? Or is there somebody in the passenger seat 
you've just been able to identify it as a self-driving car. Well, it's both. So in some of the tests, you look over and you actually see somebody in the driver's seat, but they're not driving. They're just there as a safety precaution. And that's what a lot of these companies are doing as they prove out these technologies that they can work and that, that they'll be safe. But there are just now new versions where you can begin to see them drive around where there's, there's not a, a driver and there might be just somebody sitting in the back seat. And I can tell you the first time you see it, you do a double take. You just, you're not used to it. And then the second time you see it, you kind of look at it and you go, oh, okay, that's what's going on. And by the third or fourth time, you barely notice it. Oh, boy. Okay. So I, I, I can see the pattern of what's going to happen. In, in 10 years, will restaurants be the same or will there be differences in restaurants? So there's already changes starting to happen in restaurants, right? We, and we've seen that as well. I mean, restaurants have changed throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. Um, you know, ultimately is about food and how you get your food. But we've seen the flow of that change. We've seen hospitality change. So yeah, I think we'll continue to see a change. I think from a technology standpoint, how you order, from a safety standpoint, making sure that the, that the facilities are clean. Um, from a delivery standpoint, certainly, as we have more autonomous vehicles, you'll be able to get things just delivered to your home. You know, but ultimately, eating, that's the wonderful thing about eating, is it's still eating. <laughs> and human beings like to eat. Will sports change because of the technological changes over the next 10 years? This is a great question. I love this question because I am a huge sports fan. I'm a big baseball guy. I'm a big college football guy. I even like motorsports. So I'm a huge, huge sports fan. And the thing, as a futurist looking at sports, I had um, a couple people ask me, so how will technology change sports? And you could take something, you know, um, you, you start looking, say, at a, at a center fielder, right, who, who's running backwards and shags a fly ball with one hand diving through the air. And when you watch that, you realize that sports shows us how awesome human beings are. Like the things that we can do, and especially these professional athletes, they train their whole life to do that. And so when I watch sports and I see that center fielder catch that fly ball, I realize as a, as a roboticist that building a robot to do that right now is nearly impossible. And it starts to ask yourself, well, why? Because ultimately sports is about that is about the triumph of humanity. And that's what you're watching across a field or go around a track is that the triumph of humanity. And so in that way, I don't think sports changes all that much because that's what we're interested in. That's what really draws us to it. Now, much like the sabermetrics that were highlighted in, in the book in the movie Moneyball, a lot of the metrics, a lot of the training facilities, all of those will only get better. And our connection to the sport and the amount of information we have to sports will only get better. But ultimately, I think just like with life itself, that's why I love sports is because sports is ultimately there to remind us of how awesome humans are. You know, I'm getting more and more comfortable as we're talking about the future here uh, because I'm realizing that my humanity is my best quality. And it's really simply a matter of just seeing this technology as a tool to make me more human that will make me feel comfortable. That's the goal. 
And, and that's how you felt all along. Yes. Have you ever feared technology? No. I fear, when I think about it, my, my main fear is that people remain passive. I mean, the thing that I know from doing this for so long is that the future is built by people. And every day, the future is built by the actions of people, by organizations, by individuals, by governments and militaries and corporations and churches and you name it. It's built by people. And the thing that worries me is when people are passive, because everybody should be an active participant in their future. And that's really, if, if it was one thing that worried me, is when people give up that power. That really worries me. Now, when it comes to the uses of technology, certainly that's one of the things that I do. That I'm the director of a threat casting lab at Arizona State University, and that's where we look 10 years out and look at possible threats to national security and economic security. And that's very much about threats and looking where things could go wrong. But typically that has the things, it's, it's human beings that are using the technology, not the technology itself. But what I tell my students in the lab when we're doing this is, that's okay, because you know you can't build a hammer sufficient enough to build a house that's also not sufficient enough to bash somebody's head in. But hey, guess what? We're not all walking around with hammers sticking out of our heads. And that's because we have culture, we have laws, we have ethics that surround it that say, hey man, you're not allowed to bash somebody in the head. You should really just use this to go build a house. And that's really part of what I do with technology is looking at those possible futures and then figuring out how we disrupt, mitigate, and recover from them, how we actually make it better and surround that culture so that we're safer. What are the biggest threats that you see out there over the next 10 years? Well, it really is the usage of all the technologies that I mentioned before. We begin to see the uses of artificial intelligence, of the Internet of Things, as well as smart cities, uh, robotics, certainly, and those autonomous vehicles in land, sea, and air. Each of those are going to have amazing promise, but we know with the march of technology, with that promise, there's always the flip side that there's an, the potential for peril. So in all of those things, I'm looking at what are the potential threats that could come from those, and then what does government, what is the military, what is private industry, what is academia, what do foundations, and even what do average people need to do to make sure that we don't move towards those dark futures. Can you give me an example of something uh, that I should have on my radar uh, to worry about? Because when I <laughs> look at my technology, Actually, the threats to me are these just crazy things. Like I, I wake up and my internet doesn't work. And then I try to find out why and there's some kind of problem that really had nothing to do with me. Wh what threats should I be thinking about? So... We've talked a little bit about artificial intelligence. I can give you an example of that. So in the threat casting lab at Arizona State University, we did a workshop where we convened together about 40 people from across different industries, again, from government, military, private industry, academia, foundations, and students. So we got everybody together and we looked at the future of the weaponization of artificial intelligence. How can you turn AI into a weapon? And one of the findings, which we published in a report that was called The New Dogs of War, The Weaponization of Artificial Intelligence, which is available online at our Threatcasting Lab website, 
we started to see how artificial intelligence could be used for surveillance and coercion. Surveillance and coercion being something that's been around for a long time, and the ability to just watch what a person is doing, you surveil them. And then once they do something wrong, which inevitably people do because we're human and we're complicated, that then you use that information to coerce them into doing something that they wouldn't normally do. And that could be corporate espionage, that could be blackmail, sort of you name it. And that's nothing new. We've had that for a long time. This sounds like what Jeff Bezos is going through with the National Enquirer. Right, right. It's that, that is surveillance and coercion. But where the weaponization of artificial intelligence comes in there is what these systems then allow people to do is not just watch a single person where you have a one person or a group of people watching another person or a group of people. You can actually just have the machines surveilling an entire company and waiting for one person to make a misstep and then using that information, having a bad actor then step in, everything else being done by automated technologies, watching people on social media, watching their habits, you know, maybe they, um, their sleep number, you know, they, they're, they're tweeting that they're at work or they're on Facebook, they say that they're at work, but then you look at their sleep number bed and their sleep number bed shows that, no, they're actually in bed. And also it turns out that the <laughs> person next to them is maybe not their partner. Well, then they can use that information to then go back to that person and say, hey, could you go and, and put this little piece of code on your company's server? And then that puts a virus into the server. So one of the things to, that we sort of showed was that you then have the ability to use these machines to a much larger scale around surveillance and coercion. Wow. Okay. Enough of the, the real fears here. I, I'm just trying to figure out how to get through these next 10 years. So. At what point will my keyboard become irrelevant to me? How will I go straight from my mind to like words on a page? Well, there's a couple of steps there. Um, and to really what we're talking about is the death of the keyboard. So when will the keyboard go away? When will there be no more keyboards? And to think about that, we have to go back into the past. So we, you have the QWERTY keyboard, which was designed for a typewriter. And it was designed in such a way because there was a flaw with other keyboards because the way people were typing, they were typing so fast that the little hammers and the levers were getting all gummed up. They were all kind of getting um, all on top of each other. So what the QWERTY keyboard allowed people to do is it slowed them down and it slowed the striking of the arms down so that the, the, the technological and the mechanical workings of a, of a typewriter could work. And that's where the QWERTY keyboard came from. And it worked, and it, you know, and people could do that. And all of a sudden, people were typing, and it sort of made its way all the way through the Industrial Revolution, and we had it. And then all of a sudden, we had these crazy new things called computers, and we needed to have a way to put information inside of that computer. So, you know, that QWERTY keyboard was working on that typewriter. So let's just pick that up and turn a, a make it a keyboard on this computer. Now, I have to remember, there was no reason for them to do that. Again, the reason why the layout of this keyboard was the way that it was, was to slow you down so that the arm and hammers of the, uh, the typewriter didn't get all gummed up. But we did it anyway because it was the mental model to kind of understand, okay, here's how I input the device. It's like a, it's kind of like a typewriter, but it's not. It's a little bit different, right? But it's how I do words. Well, and that got us all the way up until the 
you know, the, the 21st century. Everyone was just sort of, we accepted it. We we're like, okay, fine. That was like that before. It should be like that now. Again, no reason for it to be that way. And then we got these things called smartphones, right? And then back in 2007, right, the Apple iPhone came out and it had a keyboard on it too. And it was on this little screen and it was a keyboard. It was the same keyboard that came to slow people down on this mechanical device, but we still used it. We still used it and it slowed us down and we did misspellings and it was all this crazy stuff. But now we finally gotten to the point where we have voice to text and text to voice where we can just speak to our phone. It has voice recognition. So many people now you'll see have voice recognition where you can just talk to your phone and your voice, it types in what you say. Or if you have some of these newer devices where you have Alexa or Cortana or Siri, you can just ask them to do something and they will do it. And we're starting to see the death of the keyboard because you're starting to have a generation that's being born right now who just asks for something and it happens. They don't type it in. They don't need to type it in. So you can begin to know, you will know that the keyboard is about to die is when you have that baby born who has no reason to ever use a keyboard because now they just ask for something. They speak to their computer. It sends a message. It types it for them and you don't need it anymore. So you begin to see that that keyboard becomes obsolete. And really, we're at to that point right now where you can just ask the computer for something using voice and it'll do it for you. And that's truly magic. It's amazing. But what happens like if you're a writer and as the saying goes, writing is rewriting and you need to rewrite things. You're not getting it out exactly the way you want it on the first draft or the second or the third or the fourth. How will that writer operate without a keyboard? So imagine if that writer was born after the death of the keyboard and that writer was wanted to write a story, but just dictated it. And they learned to not think on a keyboard, but were able to think through talking. And Are you telling me that I don't get my first draft right because I'm putting it through a keyboard? No, I well, I, I, I wouldn't be able to judge the, the values of the writer and how it works. What I'm telling you is that there's no difference. There's no difference between typing on the keyboard and then speaking the words to into a sensor or a microphone that takes it down. I mean, oftentimes, many writers and, and many very prolific writers move from the keyboard and actually speak in the old days into a dictaphone. And somebody else would go type it for them. Well, now it's the same thing. You're speaking into a dictaphone, but the dictaphone is actually now just a computer and it knows how to take your words and turn it into text. Yeah, I I guess I just have always been accustomed to thinking that a great work of art is something that generally isn't done on the first shot, that it's revised and revised and revised. But it sounds like what you're telling me is that there will just be an adaptation and the kids that are just speaking will learn to adapt their revisions. Yeah, they'll be able to adapt it via their voice. They'll be able to adapt it and say, well, I didn't really like that sentence. Let's, let's maybe, maybe it should be like this, or maybe you should change it like this. Or you could even have, and we even see a little bit of this today, you could have that artificial intelligence making the changes for you. All of us have have experienced autocorrect or spelling check. Well, that's a computer actually doing the corrections for you. We can see now that 
um, a lot of these devices are actually reading what you write so that even now, say if you're on Gmail um, and you type an email that says, oh, and attached is this really funny picture on a vacation and you press send and you've forgotten to attach it, oftentimes it'll come up and say, hey, it says attachment in here. Do you remember the attachment? So that's the computer reading your what you've written and making sure that it's correct. And will I be able, I, I guess you're saying I'll just be able to speak it and then look at it and then speak corrections. And I won't be slowed down by this keyboard that I have come to feel is an extension of me. Yeah, because that keyboard was a tool, right? And that tool was a way for you to get what you needed from a typewriter or a computer. But that's not human. It's turning you into a machine. Ultimately, what's more human is collaboration, which is what humans are really good at. So oftentimes, you're not only just collaborating with other people, which is incredibly exciting and how some of the greatest works of art have come about, but imagine now you're just collaborating with your computer. Man, I got to say, this conversation has made me rethink a lot of me. I don't know where it's going to take me, but... I have a sense it's going to take me into the future. Exactly. Like I said, welcome to the future, Cal. Well, thank you for accepting me. I hope this is the first of many conversations because everything you say is new to me. And those are the best conversations. I've really enjoyed it. I look forward to talking again soon. That about wraps it up. Thank you, Tim Ferriss, for telling me to start this podcast. I only wish I had listened to you earlier because I would have had more conversations like the one everyone just heard. I want to thank my sponsors, WeWork, My Intent Bracelets, and Sportique. If you need office space, go to WeWork.com and use the offer code www.we.co slash cal and get a 20% discount. If you're looking for a way to motivate yourself, check out myintent.org and get a transformational bracelet with a word chiseled on it that will guide you to where you want to go. That's myintent.org. Use the offer code CAL, C-A-L, for a 30% discount. And if you want to feel as comfortable as I do when I do these intros and outros to the podcast, then check out the threads I'm wearing right now. Go to sportteak.com and find out why the hoodies, comfy tees, and sweatpants are the meaning of the word comfort. And use the offer code CAL, C-A-L, for 20% off. Thank you to all of you listening. And don't forget to send me photos of where you listen to big questions. One day, I may show up in just that spot with a Sportteak hoodie for you. Until then... Cheers.